Welcome to Prisma, a podcast on the internet where we talk about national and international issues. I'm your host from inland China, Jerry Zhao, and in today's episode, we have the famous, or should I say, infamous, Tadeo Thelonius, aka just Tadeo, from Chile. Hello, hello, Tio. So, Tadeo, how's the coronavirus doing over in Chile? You know, being so close to Brazil. Oh yeah, so coronavirus here in Chile was a weird coincidence because we had a very important political referendum. Uh, it was due April, if I'm recall correctly, and due to coronavirus, the government had to move or reschedule the referendum to October. And it was weird because coronavirus arrived in Chile just at the time that protests were reaching their peak. So yeah, it's quite complicated because right now you have a lot of political tension contained just by quarantine and healthy measures. But as far as this pandemic stops, people are going to take over the streets again. So yeah, it's quite complicated. It's a lot of tension here in Chile. Right. Yes, and we'll of course talk more about it as we go on. Um, any plans for school now that Corona has thrown a wrench in the start of our your your next year? I mean, I really don't know because nobody knows what's going to happen, especially if you are a UWC student, uh, because holding an international educational model through remote learning or online learning, especially with all the time zones tangle and the teachers and availability of time, blah, 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 blah. It's quite complicated. So right now I'm as lost as everyone is. Yeah. Right, yeah. And on that, I remember us going back all the way to the start of the school year, right? Um, we are together in the same house and I remember coming up the elevator and I think I met this guy, who looked kind of handsome, and he just pointed to me and he said, oh, that's Sophia's world or Sophie's world. That, yeah. That's a cool book. Yeah, it, it, it is a cool book. It is a cool book. It was one of the first books I read. Uh, you can call it philosophical books, but I think that every book is as philosophical as all the other ones, except that we have some boundaries that say something whether is philosophical or not. But yeah, it is a cool book. And I remember, I don't know if you remember too, but it was, we were in the same house, right? We were housemates. And besides, mm. we were part of the same uh, advisor group with Sherla, oh, yeah. with Ted and Michal and uh. I don't remember, and with Olivia. And I think I forgot the other names. And it was this guy, Jerry, and you didn't seem a Chinese lad. To be honest, because yeah. you were so, it, it was mainly because of your English and type of social interaction. You know, Chinese people who have grew up, uh, who have like grown up in China, they have like different ways of social of behaving socially, and you were more kind of Western in the ways mm -hmm. in which you would, you know, I don't know, perform during your daily life, and it was weird. You were a cool guy. It was like. Oh. <laughs> It's Jerry. Yeah, <clears throat> that was the impression that I sought to give. And the impression that you gave to me was a philosophical wanderer of the world. 
though though the the first weeks i was a, a bit of a little bit self, uh, self-conscious about like you know being able to communicate with other people it was a bit of a stormy period for me you know because i have spoken and talked this with other people but i remember when i was about to departure from Chile to China and I was having a conversation with my grandfather he's one of my masters and he asked me why are you so nervous about the possibility of studying and communicating in other language in the language that was pretty much alien for me and I remember that I took a few seconds just to think my answer and then I replied if you are sport I mean if you're an athlete or if you're a musician, or if you're a performer, you your identity is based on things that not necessarily require a good usage of language. But in my case, all the things that I've ever done in my life were related with language, politics, philosophy, literature. So when I arrived at CSE, all my identity was taken away, and I was all the time pardon myself uh, before other people. And I was like, pardon me, pardon me, pardon me. My English is not, is not good enough and so on. And yeah, I remember you were one of the ones that gave me a little bit of, uh, I don't know, self-esteem. So appreciate it, appreciate it. Of course. And now that you've been through, you know, everything, an entire year in a foreign land, can you give <laughs> us now your, you know, self-introduction and let me see how well you've been improved. Okay, okay, self-introduction. Oh, this is also an English test. Okay. Mm-hmm, yeah. Jerry, Jerry, a.k.a. TOEFL examiner. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, uh, introduction. So I was born in Mexico. I am half Mexican, half Chilean, so Latin American 100%. Uh, the fathers, my father's side of the family, uh, they are all Mexicans. On the other hand, my mother's side of the family, they are all Chilean. Though my family uh, is quite mixed up because my grandparents, so of course the parents of my mother, they were exiliated during Pinochet's uh, dictatorship. So they went to Mexico and Mexico was a big uh space for Chilean refugees political refugees so mexico was one of the few countries which accepted Chilean refugees or rather than you know the political refugees besides france and my mother grew up in mexico and then they returned to chile as long as the democracy uh had turned back to our country uh and that was during the 90s 90s uh so yeah i grew up my first seven years in mexico and as a poet that i really like called enrique lin he says that the childhood is like the moment or the period of our lives in which life show itself completely uh honest before us our childhood can summarize and you know, like fold and grab up everything that is going to happen afterwards. Uh, so yeah, my childhood in Mexico is kind of my paradise, my lost 
paradise is that little space in time and space in which I felt comfortable with life. And then came my other period. I we moved to Chile, and then it was a stormy period because a lot of things happened uh, simultaneously, succeeding each other unceasingly. So, for example, we I, we first moved from Mexico to Chile. Then I went to one school. It was kind of a hippie school. Then I moved to a private school, which was a little bit more strict. It was an Italian school. There, there I learned a little bit of Italian, but I then I moved to public education, which in Chile is a huge problem because the gap between public education and private education is a gigantic problem. We can talk a little bit of a little bit about that if you want. And when I moved to this public uh, school, uh, something happened. So you know about you know something about Chilean student movement, student no. protest. Okay, so. Chile was famous in Latin America in Latin America because of uh, the student protest, and the student protest can be divided into three main stages. The first one was in 2001, the second was the second one was 2006, and the third was the third one was uh, 2011. And uh, in those three years, the student move, movement exploded, completely exploded, and was the topic number one in Chilean political sphere. And actually, the leader of the 2011 uh, student movement was named the person of the year by, if I recall correctly, BBC. Uh, her name is Camila Vallejo. So when I moved to this public school, it was, I moved there not only because I wanted another environment, I wanted to I wanted to face the Chilean reality. Uh, mm -hmm. It was the first time in my life in which I was in the same classroom as in, uh, I was sharing classes with the children and the sons of criminals, and it was quite poof, you know it was a radical change of environment. But that school was characterized by its uh, high political activity. Uh, so one day I went to the public transportation with a friend and we were there uh, from bus to bus explaining to the people our demands, our movement. And a random lady just recorded me and published that on Facebook and that went viral. <laughs> and then they called me for a TV show and I was just 13 years wow. old. And I was a, a like a panelist, and I was debating against like Congress people. You can Damn. just a, actually look it up in, on YouTube, uh, and it, it was so funny. And then the years after that, I was all the time being sort of a student leader, or at least involved in politics because Chilean uh, politics within educational world I ca are kind of toxic and sectarian, and just. I'm about to finish, but then I realized that all this time participating in politics was kind of worthless according to my perspectives, because Western politics are based on the idea of binary political thought. So you have the left and you have the right, or if you want to say you have authoritarian left and liberal left and, you know, uh, authoritarian right and liberal libertarian sorry libertarian right 
but I don't think that politics behave in that way. I think each individual or party is all the time mutating and going from one cardinal political point to another. So I went out of politics because I thought that that system, or better said, the emotional system linked to political Western thought is really toxic because you always have to have the reason, right? If you're a politician, you can never admit that you committed a mistake. You can never accept that the other party is right, perhaps. And you cannot admit that sometimes your party didn't have the power, the strength to face the problem. You always have to justify yourself and you have to hold to that position that I am the leader and I am the chosen one with all this group of people that believe in the same ideas as I do. And I don't think pol politics or democracy is about that. I'm not going to talk about democracy right now because the conversation could extend even more. Mm -hmm. So I moved from politics to philosophy and literature. And that was magic. Just com it was completely magical for me because politics is at a space in which you are all the time exposed to the public opinion and you have to give your opinion in front of a mass of people and you have to justify every single historical decision that you are making or that a group of people are making, whatever. But in philosophy and literature, you don't have any type of temporary pressure. You don't have to respond to a, content, a contingency. You are just there improvising and juggling around with your thoughts, with your ideas. It's a space, it's a space in which freedom is much freer than politics. <laughs> I don't know if you get me. You can yeah, be yeah. whoever you want at the moment you want and you can create. And it's rather a much more personal and genuine space than politics. And then I went to China. <laughs> <laughs> That's my life <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, so definitely there's a lot of huge impacts of Chilean leadership on your family, as you said yourself, right? Uh, the main reason why you were sort of, I guess, born in Mexico was because of that dictatorship from yeah, Pin exactly. Pinochet? Was yeah, Pinochet, Pinochet, exactly, Pinochet, exactly. So please, could you fill me and of course the audience in on overall the Chilean history with its leaders, with its okay. dictators, if there's any, or more than one, uh, with I, the current state as of now, and just everything. I remember when I arrived at China, uh, and then when I arrived at Ireland, something that really shocked me was this feeling of very down-rooted historical foundations for each country. So China is a millionary country or hundreds of thousands of dozens of countries within one territory, right? And in Ireland, you don't have this like multinational or plurinational state as China might be, but you have this idea of Ireland. Ireland exists from many, 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 many years ago. So one of the things that shocked me is this very strong and historically very, very deeply rooted common identity, right? 
because in Chile we don't exist as you do as a Chinese lad or as an Irish lad because we were kind of created we are the product of colonization actually Chile we don't know even the origin of our name some people have traced back the origin of the name Chile the etymology of Chile to Mapuche, Mapurungun, better said. Other people said that means something in Aymara. Other people say that means something even in Castilian, in Old Castilian. And actually, we'll. So you could say that Chilean politics or Chilean historical uh, perspective of what politics are here can be summarized into binary thought as well. So at the beginning, when Chile got independent, I mean, when Chile reached the, the independence, uh, we started creating a state. And we divided, we followed the European model, the liberal democracy, and we divided our representatives on two sides, right? You have the right wing and the left wing, the liberals and the, conserva uh, the conservative side. And Throughout Chilean political history, it has always been the same. You have a left side and a right side that are sometimes radical. So just let me, get, let me give you this uh, datum. I think it's really important. We average, we have a dictatorship or a coup, better said, every 40 years. Every 40 years, Chile, ha Chile has had historically a coup every 40 years. So you have 1973, and then you have, if I'm not mistaken, 1954. And we even had, we were even a socialist republic for two years, from 1923 to 1924. It was the Socialist Republic of Chile. But I'm not gonna go throughout all Chilean political history. I'm gonna mm -hmm. talk just about uh, Allende's government and the Unidad Popular, which won... Okay, so Allende was a socialist. He was part of the Socialist Party. And he was extremely democratic. So on the one hand, you have all the guerrilleros in Cuba, right? And in Uruguay, the Tupamaros. And in Peru, and in Colombia, Las Farc. So you have a lot of guerrilleros group around Latin America. But here in Chile, you just had one uh, revolutionary movement. I mean, revolutionary in the terms of, you know, conquering the power uh, hmm. using guns, right? Uh, but Salvador Allende presented himself four times uh, during presidential elections. And he was the first socialist and Marxist president ever elected by democratic channels ever in history all the other socialist leaders before Tomás Mancara in Africa even Mao Zedong and even Stalin Lenin eh, Tito Rosa Luxemburgo Gramsci and eh, Le Brigadieri Negri in Italy all all the other revolutionary movements have taken the power even in Cuba even that short time in which we built in we in which we built this brief but important socialist republic in Chile. Mm -hmm. All those events uh, happened through uh, warlike mediums. 
But right. Salvador Allende was elected democratically, and he was the first one. And when the U.S. Okay, just let me finish with this. And when the U.S. saw that first they got the Cuban Revolution during the 50s, better said, 59, and then they saw that Salvador Allende was the first president elected Democrat, the first socialist and, Mar and Marxist president ever elected. And then they had the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. They initiated the Operation Condor. Have you ever heard about Operation Condor? Go on, keep Okay, so Nixon, I, I, don't, I don't recall if Nixon, it, uh, I, think, I think it was Nixon. Yeah, it was Nixon. Nixon and, yeah, it was completely, yeah, just Nixon. Nixon designed, besides other politicians, something that is known as the Operation Condor. And Operation Condor was a sophisticated strategic, strategical movement so they could take the power all over Latin America, I mean the U.S., uh, through coups, right? Hmm. So they organized a coup in Argentina with Videla. They organized a coup in Chile with Pinochet. They killed all the revolutionaries uh, in Uruguay, not all of them, but they organized, they tried to stop the FARC in Colombia. Okay, so Operation Condor was pretty much, they took Latin American soldiers and armies and they took them to the U.S., and they trained them so they could torture and kill the communists here in Latin America. Okay, that's Operation Condor. And then, this is the most interesting part. Have you ever heard about a term neoliberalism? I've heard a bit about it, but or define globalization. it. Globalization. So neoliberalism is a model of, capital, of capitalism that the focus is no longer on the idea of production, but on the idea of consuming things, oh, yeah. consuming articles and producing massively. But the main idea of economy lies on the consumer. The more we consume, the stronger the economy is. And even China has accepted that model. And neoliberalism, rather than just an economic system as capitalism was or mm -hmm. industrial capitalism was, Neoliberalism is a political system that is all the time self-creating and self-recreating itself. So every time a need surges in the population, neo the market or neoliberalism, this idea of the, I don't know how you call it in English, like the blind or the hidden hand, Adam Smith, hidden hand, I, I don't know. Uh, the invisible I, I, hand? The invisible hand, thank you. So, sorry, I forgot the English name. The invisible hand of Adam Smith. So you have this market that is controlling every single aspect of our life. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about neoliberalism right now, but neoliberalism was a model that led to globalization and it was implemented mm -hmm. by Reagan and Thatcher, you know, the duo, the dynamic duo. Yes. Okay, and but they first had to try neoliberalism in other countries just to see if worked, right? Whether or not it was doable and profitable for them. So the first country in which they implemented neoliberalism was my beautiful country, <laughs> Chile, during Pinochet dictatorship. And at the beginning, we had an inflation of the 600%, one of the yeah. highest inflation rates that we have ever had. 
But afterwards, our economy started to work better. And Reagan and Thatcher, they said, why not? And then, and that's why Thatcher is famous for two quotes. And I'm going to quote Margaret Thatcher. I never, I never thought that I'd be doing this, but <laughs> never mind. So she has two beautiful quotes. <laughs> Paradoxically, mm -hmm. two beautiful quotes. One of those is, my biggest achievement, if I recall correctly, is Tony Blair. And the other one is the aim, I mean, the method is economy, but mm. the goal is to change the soul. So neoliberalism can be summarized into those words. Neoliberalism means market, the idea of market, market and commodification expanded to every single sphere or microsphere of our daily lives and i think i have spoken too much but yeah <laughs> no. i'm a weird guy please pardon me <laughs> it's all good it's all good that's fantastic like i've honestly heard a lot about the growing economy like it was i believe seen as like a miracle of some sort because it just kept going up for chile you just well, the economy, at least I heard, for Chile was very good during Pinochet's time. So that was just <laughs> caused by neoliberalism, yes? Caused by this experiment from Reagan and Thatcher? Yeah, actually, th there's a Canadian uh, writer. Uh, her name is Naomi Klein, and she has a documentary called uh, Shock Doctrine, or The Shock Doctrine, highly recommended, mm. and it talks about neoliberalism and Chile specifically and an economical do you know uh, Milton Friedman or von Hayek von Hayek Milton Friedman the Austrian oh. economy school something yeah, like yeah. that okay so they were the ones that were organizing the economic reforms in Chile and they created a group of uh, economists they were educated in uh, the University of Chicago under Milton mm. Friedman's uh, uh, lectures and instructions and they designed our economic model, the Chilean economic model. We were actually, we were after the Cold War, Chile was one of the first countries which uh, extremely opened their economies and installed free market at every single level of, at every single dimension of the, our social system. So in other countries, for example, in China, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken, 90, 98% of uh, students reach junior school, just 3% reach high school, right? If I'm not mistaken, something of like that, right? But something, yeah, and yeah, yeah. at least a 3 or 2% go to private education, but, but most of the people go to public education. Where in mm -hmm. Chile, public education had that a similar statistic, but after the privatization, all the privatization processes that Pinochet a privatization process that Pinochet led, uh, the quantity of people that were studying in public education reduced from an 80% of the population to less than 30%. And before Pinochet's dictatorship, there were about 3,000 state uh, companies. And after Pinochet's dictatorship, just 30 of them remained. All the other ones were uh, given as a gift to Pinochet's uh, similars. Uh, mm -hmm. 
and members of the family or just people with a lot of influence in terms of power and so on so on right so would that be uh, so like the reduction of how many people were educated the reduction of you know the amount of businesses and stuff was that the main reason for the coup against Pinochet or was it just because of no, no, the no, no, US's no. Pin- intervention? No, Pinochet was the one that led the coup. Well, oh, wait, hold on. Okay, so Pinochet led the coup. He was the mm-hmm. general of the army, of the Chilean army. And it was because Salvador Allende was the first socialist and Marxist president ever elected right right and he was elected in 1970 right and Mm -hmm. this was really connected to this global social movement the 68 that started in france but you also have protests in mexico blah 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 blah, all around the world right so uh salvador agenda's election converged with cuban revolution uh, Nicaraguense, I don't know how to say Nicaraguense in English, Nicaraguense revolution or Sandinist revolution uh, converged with Argentinian Peronism that was kind of revolutionary. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of socialist movement movements and organizations were triumphing. So the United States organized it, this massive series of coups and strategies so to tear all this revolutionary movement apart and mm. 1973 uh, september 11 1973 the same date as the twin towers event but years before that but 9 mm-hmm. uh the coup happened and it was led by pinochet but pinochet was nothing but the puppet of nixon right plans uh same as videla and same as all other presidents here in latin america uh so there is okay pinochet's obviously he was overthrown yes he was obviously taken out again was he overthrown by say a coup created by the people or was it just was it also one of the u.s presidents or any other major country it was weird because okay so the socialist members, also members of communist, socialist party and other organizations were either killed, tortured or exiliated, right? Mm-hmm. So the ones that were exiliated received a lot of privilege uh, in the countries that held them. So for right. example, a lot of them went to France a lot of them them went to the US and a lot of them went to either Mexico or Nicaragua. Those were the main concentration, the, the main countries that concentrated Chilean political refugees. So all of them, especially the, the, the ones that went to France, educated mm. themselves and they got a lot of PhDs. So what I was saying, so all these uh, Chilean political refugees came back by the 80s uh, and they started inwardsly here in our territory in Chile organ- organizing okay so Pinochet went to London in the 80s right and mm. he was detained then by the police 
and he was going to be judged by an international court. And they said they claimed that he was mentally unstable, right? Because he was too old. Mm -hmm. And then he came to Chile and he got so much international pressure so that he could lift the power that he organized a referendum. And the referendum was a question. Do you want the dictatorship to keep going or not? Mm -hmm. And a coalition of parties was created, right? And it was led by the Christian Democracy, the Socialist Party, the Party for Democracy or uh, Coalition of Parties for Democracies whatsoever. So it was pretty much the yes against the no. No, it was no, we don't want this dictatorship to continue. And the yes, it was yes, we want this dictatorship to continue. All right. And this happened in the 1989, right? And surprisingly, the no win at surprising surprisingly because everyone else thought that this referendum was of course uh phony it right, wasn't yeah. genuine right and then it came period of time in which this same uh coalition of parties that organized the campaign for the no during the referendum they started presenting themselves as a coalition of parties and they were like the left wing of Chile and they governed over Chile for 20 years. Wow. 20 years. And during those 20 years, that is four presidential periods, our economy grew a bit of a 20% and we became the wealthiest uh, country in South Latin America per capita with Costa right, Rica. Right. But those are just statistics, because if we look deeper, the critical basis of neoliberalism is that economy grows, but who wins when economy grows? Because the statistics, so there is an anti-poem that of a Chilean, he's an anti-poet, that's the way he called himself. His name is Nicanor Parra, and there is a beautiful anti-poem that says, there are two pieces of bread on the table. Mm. You ate two, I ate none. Average of consumption, of consumption, one piece of bread per person. I don't know if you get me, but yeah, yeah, statistics, yeah. statistics are not all the time accurate and normally they hide uh, inequality. So, yeah. Right, Fair true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is a very huge part of, you know, cap, uh, obviously calculating the wealth per capita is you're just dividing the really rich people by people who might not have enough money. And it seems like it's very good, but as a matter of fact, it's this huge wealth gap. So that is a huge issue. Another, another statistic here, the wealth per capita uh, monthly is about $5,000, but mm -hmm. the average uh, salary or normal income is about $700. <laughs> wow. Or another statistic, 1% of the population here in Chile has the 20% of Chilean total wealth. And oh. seven families control 
all the monopolies that exist in Chile. And they even know, and they, those seven families, they even own more part of the ocean than the rest of the population. So we have like, I don't remember right now, but we have like, like 10 kilometers of coast just for the entire population. And the rest of the Pacific Ocean belongs to these families, kind of. It's, it's, it's just nonsense. <laughs> That's insane. and commodification during a dictatorship and these 20 years of left-wing governments uh, just destroyed our economy. Not our destroy, no, they didn't destroy our economy, but they destroyed the uh, domestic economy of most of the families here in Chile. And right. the big companies and corporations are now the wealthiest of Latin America. But what's the cost? I mean, more than half of the Chilean population has a debt that goes over $20,000. So, yeah, inequality here in Chile, it's... It's disgusting, but anyway, we are working yeah. for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, like it's a similar situation in China, but it's just that dope. Well, I believe all of the monopolies are controlled by the government, right? Because you know we do have to keep yeah, a yeah. hand on everything, and that to me is well, the government obviously wants to maximize benefits slash welfare. Yeah, but it's okay. just it's insane to me to think of seven families controlling basically all of the country's monopolies because they could just you know with a monopoly you decide the price that's yeah <laughs> huge imbalance 